Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Dr. Mark McDonald. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Los Angeles. He participated in this White Coat Summit in Washington, D.C. recently, and there he was discussing the psychiatric, psychological uh, implications of the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the school closures, uh, the park closures, and everything else on kids. He's with us today to discuss and, and elaborate. Thank you for joining us, Dr. McDonald. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, first, uh, let me ask just quickly, what was the White Coat Summit? Uh, for those who, who, who didn't see the news about this, I, I did. Um, it was all over Twitter, for example. And what led you into being a participant in the summit? The uh, White Coat Summit, or the America's Frontline Doctor Summit, was organized by Dr. Simone Gold, who's an ER physician, who I coincidentally and serendipitously first heard speak while I was listening to Dennis Prager's AM radio broadcast here in Los Angeles on my way to work back in April. Uh, around that time, I had become concerned that Los Angeles specifically, which is where I work and practice, I'm a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist in, in West Los Angeles, uh, was going down the wrong path. Specifically, the mayor, Eric Arcetti, had ordered a lockdown of Los Angeles. And I was finding that my patients, specifically children, were becoming more and more anxious, depressed, showing signs of distress, bedwetting, scratching, uh, fighting at home, uh, panic attacks. Uh, some of them were actually self-harming. Others were fighting, like, honestly, with knives with their siblings when their parents weren't at home. It was, it was getting really scary. And I and a colleague who's an ophthalmologist named uh, Brian Walkler, who is, uh, uh, he works with me here in Los Angeles in a doctor's group that I, that I had, he <laughs> invited me to co-author an editorial that we would submit to a local paper called the LA Daily News. And the title was Safer at Home, question mark, which is the title of, or the, the theme of Mayor Garcetti's uh, stay at home order, safer at home. The question mark was after the statement safer at home, meaning is it really safer to stay at home or are we actually creating more problems? I believe that we were. And so we wrote this article together and essentially laid out the case for why it's better to not stay at home from a medical psychological perspective. That article was picked up and redistributed quite a bit. It was, it was very well received. And somehow, uh, Dr. Gold got a hold of Dr. Walkler and said, hey, you know, this, this psychiatrist you wrote the article with, I'm, I'm really curious to get a, get a hold of him. I think he has some ideas that might be of use to me. So 
so a few days after I heard her speak on the on the Prager show, uh, I got a request from Dr. Walker saying, hey, is it okay if I send over your contact info to Dr. Gold? She's interested in talking to you. She's a concerned ER physician. She has some insights into this pandemic that I think are valid. Um, and I said, gosh, that, that name sounds so familiar. I think I heard her on the Prager show. And I said, sure, go ahead. The next day I got a phone call and it was from the same woman. And I said, you know, I know your voice. I heard you on, on the radio the other day. And I really, I really was impressed by what you said. She focused primarily on the unaccounted toll on health through these pandemic lockdown shutdowns that are taking place all over the United States. That is at the time in April was very rarely spoken about. We got along really well. I shared with her my concerns about it from a psychiatrist's point of view when I'm sitting with the kids. And uh, one thing led to another. And after having been invited uh, to and then spoken at the Orange County School Board district meeting uh, about two months ago, where I gave um, uh, just a two-minute statement, really, to several hundred people and about a thousand Zoomers who were listening in from home about the importance of reopening schools because keeping them closed is actually, in my, my view, uh, child abuse and, and neglectful. That statement was picked up by the Wall Street Journal and was printed in the Notables and Quotables section the following week. This was around uh, mid-June, I believe. And after that, um, my name started floating around even further and picked up by other news agencies asking for interviews and requests for statements. And uh, as this was happening, Dr. Gold organized this America's Frontline Doctors Summit in D.C. to bring me and about eight to ten other doctors whom she had also been in contact with to uh, speak and to educate listeners, uh, not just people in an audience face-to-face, but also over the web. Everything that we know today about harm being done by the government response to the coronavirus. And in her view, even more importantly, what can we actually do about it that's effective? And this does not mean masking and social distancing and staying at home and all of this nonsense that is showing more and more evidentiary, meaning backed up empirical evidence, that it's not helping. It's actually harming things. And so what she proposed and what she had read up on and done a lot of work on, and in fact, we wrote a white paper, which is on the website uh, that she um, put up during our summit, was about the use of hydroxychloroquine coupled with zinc as an effective prophylaxis for coronavirus infection and also as an effective treatment in the early stages of the, uh, of the disease. That was her topic. So my little wheelhouse was really talking about fear, uh, how fear is perpetuating the pandemic, how it's affecting children. And hers was really talking about hydroxychloroquine. We also had other speakers that, that touched on ancillary subjects and topics. And this summit all just sort of coalesced uh, through a group of doctors led by Dr. Gold uh, from around the country that felt very strongly that the word is not getting out about what's really happening. And we wanted to present evidence-based truth, real information so that the American people would make decisions about uh, how to vote, uh, how to approach their school boards, uh, how to live, uh, how to basically uh, work on getting us past this uh, this rut that we've been in for six months that is affecting every single American that's not healthy and, in our view, is actually uh, entirely avoidable. Now, you say that you first saw the signs of the fear in your in your clinical practice, the, the people who would come to see you, who, who were your own patients. Now, 
What made you think that this simply wasn't fear, anxiety, uh, based upon genuine threat of, of, of disease and, and even death? What made you start thinking that this is starting to look that it is disconnected from reality? Well, first of all, I'm very skeptical by nature. So I'm always questioning. I'm always asking why. Show me the proof. Back up your, back up your, your, um, your statement. And when I heard around mid-March or so that we were going to be closing our country down for 14 days, I thought, this is insane. Uh, there is no evidence to support this shutdown. Um, I could not find any really reasonable empirical, empirical, sorry, empirical data to support the notion that it was in the best interest of all of us to basically uh, just go home and just sit. Um, that was the very beginning. And of course, as we all know, two weeks became four weeks, became eight weeks, became now six months. And over time, I started to really look into the data that came out after March 15th to see if there was any rationale from what was happening now to back up the claims from these models that started out of London in the first week of March that essentially we're all going to die if we don't stay home. And even at the time, that model was horribly uh, unsubstantiated and it was, it was awfully flawed. And within days, we realized, everybody realized that the numbers that were coming in were far, far less in terms of infections and deaths that were, were reported uh, from this model. So I already knew that the numbers didn't match. And then when I started to see that people in my practice were not getting sick, meaning from coronavirus, were not dying, didn't know anybody that was getting sick and dying, and that all of the data points were indicating consistently that virtually everyone that was getting sick, really sick, and dying from this disease were very, very sick people already, multiple medical problems. Half of the people were over age 80. More than 50% in most states of the infections that led to death were occurring in nursing homes. And over half of the deaths at that time and today were occurring in New York City, one city in the, in the borough surrounding it. So I think to myself, you know, if you cut out New York, you cut out people over age 80, those people who are really sick, what are you left with? And I started going to the CDC site and I noticed on the CDC website, they have all these data points and numbers of collections week to week, broken out by age, sex, medical condition. It's very, very good actually. And even assuming that the CDC is over-reporting, for example, we've all heard these cases of, uh, you know, man uh, hit by car while riding motorcycle, flies off bridge, um, breaks neck, and head explodes on concrete. Cause of death is coronavirus. I mean, this has happened all over the country. It's become like a running joke, but it's real. Even assuming that there's an over-reporting of 25 to 50%, as Dr. Burks on the Coronavirus Task Force said months ago, if you subtract out the 93% of the healthy people, because that's what the CDC says, 93% of the people, or I should say 7% of the people who, who die are, are actually healthy, 93% are already sick. You take those out and then you remove the people over age 80, you're left with a very, very small number. I calculated that it's about 10,000, 11,000 people in the United States that have actually died under age 65, healthy or not. And we don't even know. Some of them are probably sick and they said they were healthy. So I did all these calculations, doing all these, this math in my head and thinking, gosh, you know, numerically this doesn't make sense. And yet people are acting as if they're about to die if they go out in the street without a mask or, uh, or just uh, playing with their children and their friends. And what I saw with my patients was that even when I brought up this information, 
they didn't really seem to be very responsive. They would kind of blink. They would say, well, okay. They'd pause, and then they'd say, but I still feel scared. Uh, but I just don't feel safe. It was all about I feel, I feel, I feel. And what I realized was to sort of reverse Ben Shapiro's famous quote, facts don't care about your feelings. Feelings don't really care about the facts in this case. They really don't. And I stopped educating people, and I started just asking them questions. So if you weren't so afraid, if you weren't so scared, what, what do you imagine your life would look like? Oh, I'd be back to work. I'd be back to school. I'd be back in the street. And I said, wow, this is really powerful, this fear. It's not really a medical pandemic. It's actually an emotional pandemic. So how do we deal with an emotional pandemic? What, what do we do to help people calm down, flatten the fear curve, really, in order to then go back to the real world and to real life? And, and that's sort of what started my journey on focusing on this pandemic, from my point of view, more from an emotional uh, perspective as opposed to a medical one, because I really don't see, even today, any evidence that we have a medical pandemic. I mean, theoretically, yes, we do in terms of numbers, but I mean, in terms of actual risk of death and mortality, we really don't have more than a blip on the radar in terms of the public health crisis. Our problem is really fear, and it's fear that's keeping people at home, keeping them, uh, keeping the schools closed, keeping people away from uh, from going to the beach, you know, I had a child in my practice whose father came in just recently and he said, I tried to get my daughter to go with me to the beach the other day because they, they were open at that time and here in L.A. And she said, Daddy, we can't go to the beach. And he said to her, well, why not? It's a wonderful place. You love the beach. It's hot. It's, it's warm and there's air. It's clean. There's no people. She said, oh, no, that, that's not true, Daddy. What do you mean? She said, Daddy, there are other people at the beach. We cannot go there. Oh, oh, okay. So, so Dr. McDonald, if she's not getting the panic from her father, where is it coming from? Well, that's a wonderful question because I was asking myself the same thing. This man is an Israeli. He was in the armed forces, as they all are. He moved here to the U.S. to form a business. Very robust, freedom-loving, fear-loathing individual. He does not teach his children to be afraid. Where on earth would this little girl come up with the idea that going out to the beach where there's other people is going to harm them. And then I realized what it was. It's a combination of several things. It's a combination of media. People are home. So what do you do when you're home? You watch TV, you listen to the radio, you turn on your phone. And even though this little girl is not intentionally pursuing media, it's, it's everywhere. The parents are listening to it. They're filtering it out for the most part. But anytime you turn on the news, all you hear is death, death, death. Second thing she's getting, she's getting it from her friends. You know, little kids, they all have access to different sort of chat groups, uh, phone, Facebook. There's all kinds of apps I don't even know about that children are using now to share information. They're going to virtual school, which is not really school, and they're exchanging messages from their friends. And their friends' parents are telling their own children, you know, it's really, really scary out there. You have to stay at home, and if you go out, you have to wear a mask. And then they start talking. So what are you up to? Well, I went out with my, you know, with my dog. I took a walk. You wore a mask, didn't you? No, why should I do that? Well, my mommy said that if you don't wear a mask, you're going to die. You're going to kill people. So all these messages are coming out from her, from her social group, which is coming from the parents who are hysterical. So there's a lot of, of, of sources of information that kids have that come in from electronic media from other people that we're not really fully aware of as, as parents. Um, because, we're, you know, they're all sitting in their room just video gaming away. And I think that's what's really driving the fear for the, for the children. It's, it's mostly 
a kind of concentration of information through media that normally wouldn't be the case. It would be uh, displaced because the kids would be out playing and they'd have a real uh, experience uh, with scouts or church or uh, sports or clubs. And then the reality of it being fake would overcome the media. Now there is no reality. Reality is media and media is based on fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, okay, the difficulty of getting through, getting past the the panic in, in the people you encounter, you're including your patients, because you've you've written in the newspaper, now you've been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, you've spoken at at uh, school board meetings, uh, I think you said, and then you were part of this white coat summit. Have you gotten any official response from your attempt to provide some correctives, either from the medical profession or from the or from the politicians? Well, somewhat ironically and somewhat sadly, we have but not in the way that we'd expected. The reason why we received a response and some support from politicians and uh, local uh, civic organizations, doctors groups, was really because of the blow up on the internet of our live stream that we did in front of the Supreme Court steps uh, this past Monday, where after 15, 20 minutes, excuse me, we realized that we were receiving about I think we had 185,000 live stream views, simultaneous views, which was a record. And then the repost started hitting millions, you know, one, two, three million. We went up to 13.2 million reposts within eight hours, just from that one talk. And after that happened, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pulled the plug. They basically yanked all of the video streams and the files off the servers. So when you search for them, they weren't available. And it was at that point, because of the censorship response, that a lot of average Americans, people who are maybe not even politically that interested in what's going on, they're tired of it, but they really want information, like parents, for example, as you said, uh, you're a parent and you want information, as well as uh, students who just want to know, why can't I go back to school, business owners, these people were so hungry for information. When the information got cut right in the middle, they went wild. They were reposting other links. We had, my goodness, we had probably a dozen just volunteer individuals who were sort of tech nerds that sit in their basements on servers sending us messages saying, hey, we heard that everything was yanked. We, we've refiled this, this, um, this uh, podcast uh, in a secure server. Here's the link. Repost it. It won't be taken down. We had all of this support, this grassroots support coming in. And because of that, news organizations that were ignoring us during the talk, because most of it was social media that was being uh, the source of the live stream, they started broadcasting and interviewing on national, national news, people like uh, Dr. Gold, who was in charge of our group. And that night, President Trump retweeted a comment about our censorship with a link to one of our videos on uh, a different server that was protected. Within hours, his tweet was deleted by Twitter. And then the next morning, Don Jr., his son, posted a similar tweet with the same link. His link was deleted by Twitter. And then he was suspended (laughs) from his account. Two hours after that, one of the doctors in our group, um, a black woman who's an African immigrant from Cameroon, uh, she had gotten a lot of media attention because of her fiery speech on the steps. Her Facebook page was taken down by Facebook. She was banned. 
And then hours after that, uh, Breitbart, the actual website that originally live streamed the first feed, started becoming uh, de-indexed from Google. So all of their articles and content were basically removed from Google. If you searched for it, you couldn't find it anymore. This had never happened before. Uh, I spoke to a lot of, of media organizations. They said, we have never seen, first of all, this rapid of a rise in views this quickly, and second, this rapid of a and broad of a censorship of, of views, um, just content-based. And I think that that, um, that censorship catastrophe sparked the, the attention and, and, and perked the ears up of so many kind of apathetic, I'm tired of this nonsense Americans, that there's now been a lot of pressure being placed on senators, congressmen, even the president himself to uh, start to recognize the validity of our concerns regarding the suppression of information about hydroxychloroquine, the injuries and the, in my, in my view, the neglect of our children based on ongoing school closures. Um, and also, of course, the censorship itself and how important it is in a free country to be able to express your viewpoints without being shut down. Our, our own website, privately hosted website, was removed the next day by Squarespace. Squarespace went to Simone Gold, who's our, our group leader, as I said, and sent her a message and said, you have violated our content standards, meaning we disagree with you. <laughs> And we're, we're canning your website. They actually took down a privately hosted and paid for website. I've never heard of something like this. Unless you're a terrorist or a child molester, this just isn't done. And we were just doctors just getting talks. So ultimately, you get to sort of the, the answer to your question. Ultimately, um, it was that, um, that Internet blow up and that, that uh, rapid universal censorship campaign on the part of all of the tech companies that put us on the map. And now... Uh, there is a uh, executive order that was signed, I think, on Thursday by President Trump to, um, if to the extent that he can, to uh, ban censorship on the part of these uh, media giants on their platforms, uh, which had, had not happened in previous congressional hearings. Uh, that occurred on Thursday. Uh, the following day, the head of the CDC announced that he was revising his original statement about how important it is to keep all of the schools essentially closed, although he denied saying that. Uh, he, basically, that's what he said, unless you jump through 10 million hoops, you can't reopen your schools. And he said, I am now in line with President Trump's position that keeping schools open in the fall is more important and is actually safer for the children than keeping them at home and uh, letting them suffer for another year. Huge reversal of position. Uh, that was in support of the American Academy of Pediatrics position that was taken a few weeks prior that said, we've got to reopen the schools. Um, and then after that, uh, another interesting thing that happened was I think it was on Friday of last week, the state pharmacy board in Ohio announced that they were banning all prescriptions in the entire state of hydroxychloroquine. Just decided unilaterally, we're just going to ban them. We're not going to sell them anymore. Even though hundreds of thousands of mostly American women had been using this medication at high dosages every day for decades to treat lupus and rheumatoid arthritis with absolutely no deaths, no, no injuries reported for over 55 years now, I think 65 outside the U.S. as a generic drug. Well, interestingly, within hours, one of our doctors who was part of our group, who's an ER physician in uh, University of Toledo, Ohio, who spoke very passionately with great degree of evidence on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine for treating this, this illness, he called the governor's office and he said, hey, you see what's going on? 
I'm from this group. You probably heard about what happened in D.C. recently. You might want to look into this. By the end of the day, the governor of Ohio had told the pharmacy board, you have to stand down. You don't have the right to do this. You're going to kill people. And they did. They backed off. So these are just a few examples of things that have happened in the last four to five days after D.C. that I believe show that politicians are moving in the right direction and they're taking notice and they're finally acknowledging that there's a huge problem that we have, which is the suppression of effective treatment and the continuation of this just monstrously wrongheaded on all accounts, on all levels, shut down and ongoing closure of all of our educational institutions. So I'm, I'm really uh, hopeful now that things are going to start moving in the right direction. When I noticed recently, as you said, that the American Academy of Pediatrics do advise kids ought to be back in school, I thought that that would carry the authority to overturn uh, so many state and local uh, schools to, to reverse the course on, on the lockdown. Do you think in the next few weeks that we're going to see a growing number of, of states and districts saying, no, 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 we've got to open, we've got to open? I would love to see that, and I think every rational, fair-minded, non-political person would agree with that statement. However, I think it's a mixed bag right now, and, and the reason has nothing to do with science or argumentation about whether it's safe or not safe to reopen the schools. That issue is, is, that was put to bed months ago. There is absolutely no reason, medically, to keep children away from the school. There's no risk to, to children in going to school. There is virtually no risk to adults in uh, them spending time with kids. Kids do not transmit the disease. In fact, they act as uh, insulation, really, to the spread of the virus, according to the, the writer of the uh, German study in the state of Saxony that came out about four weeks ago, studying several thousand teachers and students uh, that found that not only are the kids uh, not, not, not sick from the infection, not transmitting it to adults. They're actually blocking the transmission to adults because adults are in the classroom now instead of with sick adults who are more likely to spread it. And at that point, uh, the state of Saxony that day actually uh, ordered all of the masks to go away and said kids need to move about freely in the state of Saxony. Well, I don't believe that, unfortunately, that's necessarily going to hold them a lot of weight now. Um, I think right now there's a, there's a battle, there's a war uh, going on between uh, parents of all political stripes. I, I just mean parents, people who have children, basically, right, left, center, it doesn't matter. Um, medical professionals, educators on one side, and on the other is uh, a kind of sort of unholy alliance um, among three groups, which are politicians, media, and special interests. And I'm including the teachers unions in that group. In the state of California, the governor of the state buckled under pressure after several lawsuits were filed um, about the constitutionality of removing uh, the right to education from children based on executive order with no evidence to support the position. And he ordered that uh, there be uh, waivers available for schools that would comply with these ridiculous, arbitrary numerical constraints about numbers and percentages of infected cases based on this and that. It's impossible to wade through it. City, county, school, class, it's, it's just a nightmare. And then just yesterday, uh, he reversed course and said, well, actually, uh, these waivers, we're not really sure we're going to follow through with them. We're going to let the counties decide. And if there's any school in the county that, uh, I'm sure, let me restate that, if, if, if the county itself doesn't meet the county level guidelines, 
that no school within the county is going to be able to get the waiver. And the large counties, which are L.A. County, uh, San Diego County, and Orange County, may or may not be able to meet those guidelines before fall. L.A. County certainly won't because there's a lot of cases here in L.A. So I don't know. I, I don't know, Mark. I, I, I'd really like to say yes. By, by rational accounts, absolutely the schools will be reopened. But I, I think there's such a fight on the part of, um, of, of these three groups to keep, thing to keep things closed in order to ensure certain election results, certain uh, union benefits, and basically keeping people afraid that I, I just don't know if we're going to have enough um, uh, movement to overcome this before, uh, before August, August 15th, which is when the school start. If, if kids are home and parents then having to be home uh, and find some way to, to work around this, I think by October we are going to see some very strange, chaotic, and at times, at times shocking uh, public health results or, or episodes. I, I think people are going to go crazy by October if if these if the situation continues as it is. I think that that will be a very likely scenario that will force the reopening of the schools. It won't be through a, uh, a planned civil uh, course of reopening. It's going to be uh, the result of basically a revolt on the part of, uh, of parents, of communities, of police. Uh, you're going to see, I think, a catastrophic collapse in our social structure with the schools closed. Specifically, we're not going to have parents able to go back to work. You can't go to work if, you're, if your kids are at home. You're going to see particularly middle class and lower class and minority households that live in neighborhoods where there's a greater degree of crime, drugs, lack of uh, community supervision, and certainly no ability to hire tutors and babysitters. You're going to see those communities just fall apart as kids are going to be um, getting into fights, violence, drugs, prostitution. You're going to see suicide rates in children go up. Uh, you're going to see a severe uh, mental illness just spike. I think it's going to be so um, prevalent that it'll be impossible for anyone to ignore it. And, and, and sadly, once that happens, it will be very difficult to reverse. It's not like a light switch. You can just stop it. Even if we stop the car in the tracks and open up the schools, we're going to see months and perhaps in some cases years of ongoing downstream damage. And I'm really upset. I'm angry about it because the children are really being used as pawns in this adult game of politics, money, and power. And I, I you know, I, I've always been um, somewhat perplexed uh, at, at selfishness, narcissism, hypervaluation of the, of the self that leads to damage in our society. But I never really believed, I couldn't even imagine, that people who are in positions of power, school boards, uh, mayors, governors, health department officials, would knowingly place an entire generation of children at risk of physical and mental illness and even death simply, simply to maintain and aggrandize their power and wealth. The L.A. County Teachers Union just a few days ago announced formally that they would not allow their teachers to return to the classrooms in all of L.A. County, that's almost a million kids, even if the classrooms were kept empty and the children we're staying at home and everything was done virtually. An empty classroom, a computer, and a teacher were too dangerous for the teachers to return to school. Now, that's, that's not an error. That is craven. That is a, a blatant 
uh, statement that all that we care about is ourselves and through the kids. And I was just, I was shocked. Even I'm a bit cynical, I said and skeptical. I was shocked. And if that's the attitude, we're going to go down a really nasty path in September and October until the body count starts to rise. And I don't mean from coronavirus. I mean from this, this lack of will and lack of, of care for the kids. And it's at that point that people are going to wake up and say, oh, my God, what have we done? But it's going to be too late. Dr. Mark McDonald, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for the opportunity, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. 